This podcast was sponsored by Mutual Insurance Company of Arizona. Mike is the select provider of medical professional liability coverage for the Maricopa County Medical Society. For more information about MICA, call 602-956-5276 or visit www.mica-insurance.com. Hello, this is Dr. May Moti, a pediatrician and urgent care physician who has been in practice in the Greater Phoenix area and Scottsdale since 1991. I have been a member of Maricopa County Medical Society since 2001 and I'm the immediate past president for Maricopa County Medical Society. I am a clinical associate professor at University of Arizona College of Medicine, and I welcome you to the Arizona Physician Podcast. The physician would probably not handle an IRS case or a DUI case. A physician should not handle a board case. They just don't know enough about it. Hi, and welcome to the Arizona Physician Podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. And we're joined by Dr. Stephen Pormutter, who is also a lawyer. Steve went to medical school at Washington University, St. Louis, internship at St. John's Mercy Medical Center, and a residency at Washington University Barnes Hospital. He was board certified in ophthalmology and then had a shift in career and went from practicing medicine to practicing law. Steve, thank you very much for being on the Arizona Physician Podcast. My pleasure. I appreciate the invitation. Really glad to have you here. You had been profiled in the previous iteration of the magazine called Roundup. I think this was back in 2014. Um, You've written articles for us in the past, and also the profile talked a little bit about your background and the switch from medicine to to law. Can you talk about that shift, what had happened, and, you know, maybe touch on some of the things that you've learned in being a lawyer representing physicians? Sure, happy to. I practiced in town ophthalmology for almost 25 years, which I enjoyed very much. Unfortunately, I developed a neuropathy, a progressive neuropathy. I knew it was coming. My neurologist said to me, you have about a year, and then you're no longer going to be able to do surgery, which is what I did mostly. I did a, a lot of cataract surgery. So I thought my neurologist was going to turn out to be incorrect. On the other hand, uh, I didn't want to take a chance. So I thought about what else I might want to do. And I went ahead and applied to law school. The neurologist turned out to be correct, but fortunately I had another career available to me. At first I thought maybe I would retire, but I was only 53 at the time and I got bored very easily. So I knew retirement wasn't going to be for me, but I was looking for a career, another career that had intellectual uh, pursuits that, involved uh, dealing with people, specifically physicians and people in healthcare. So law seemed like a reasonable choice. Went to law school, went through in uh, two years and decided that, that practicing health law, specifically practicing board complaint law would be the thing for me. I never joined a big law firm. I went out, established my own practice. I thought that the handling board complaints would be about the only thing I could competently do. And, and that's what led me to do this. That's great. Well, congratulations on your shift and the success you've had. And uh, thank you for helping physicians. Thank you. What we'd like to do in the first half of this discussion is um, go back in time a little bit and set the stage for listeners about the Arizona Medical Board, the Board of Osteopathic Examiners, what they are, why they exist, what they do. And then the second half of the interview, we'll talk about 
your more recent article about how to avoid the board. So let's first start by talking about the Arizona Medical Board and the Arizona Board of Osteopathic Examiners. What are they and why do they exist? Well, both are regulatory board, boards that have a specific mission. Their mission is to protect the health and welfare of Arizona's citizens. And in order to do that, they have to regulate physicians. The Arizona Medical Board's been around for more than 100 years. A lot of old folks in town like me know, know it as BOMEX. It used to be the Board of Medical Examiners. The osteopathic board, I can't tell you how many years it's been in existence, but I think it's been quite a few as well. So in order to protect the public, they need to regulate physicians. They regulate physicians by handling licensing applications and renewals, uh, having a minor education function. They develop rules for physicians. And what concerns me most are board complaints. The medical board's composed of 12 members, eight physicians, and four public members. Of those four public members, one of them must be a nurse. The osteopathic board is smaller. It has five physicians on it and two public members. The boards actually work relatively similarly. There are some distinct differences. I would say probably the largest difference between the two boards are the standards that they consider when they're deciding whether there's been unprofessional conduct. The medical board, and, and you may have heard of standards of proof. In criminal law, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. I think everybody's watched enough TV to be familiar with that. But there are other standards of proof. The medical board uses something called clear and convincing evidence. So the certainty of, of the board in making a decision doesn't have to be quite the level of certainty for beyond a reasonable doubt, but you have to be pretty sure that the doctor has done the wrong thing before you would impose disciplinary action. If you look at percentages, clear and convincing, I would say, you've got to be 75 to 80% convinced for the medical board. The osteopathic board is only predominant evidence. In other words, if the doctor is more likely than not guilty of unprofessional conduct, then the board would find that the doctor is guilty of unprofessional conduct. So the standards are different and, and those, are, those are by statute and by rule. Other than that, there are fine differences in processes, but, but the intent of both boards is the same. And as I mentioned earlier, you have written an article for the previous version of the magazine called Browned Up, and it was entitled Anatomy of a Board Complaint. So who files a complaint and how does it work? Complaint be, can be filed by many different parties. Most of the time the complaint is filed by a patient, but it can be filed by a doctor. Doctors do have a responsibility, a statutory responsibility to uh, report unprofessional conduct by other doctors. Uh, other parties can do it. Insurance companies can do it. Hospitals or surgery centers. Arizona Department of Health Services, the board itself can do it. If the board gets a, a notice from the National Practitioner Data Bank or the board gets word of the settlement or the loss of a medical malpractice case, the board on its own motion will file a complaint. And then the final one is the self-complaint. This is where a doctor 
has to file by law his or her own complaint and usually has to do with um, charges of a felony or a misdemeanor. This is kind of interesting. There is on, on the board site a list of the misdemeanors, the alleged misdemeanors that you have to report. Some of them are rather uh, interesting. Uh, improper maintenance of a stallion is a reportable offense. Loitering, so if, if the doctor's around uh, Fashion Square, kind of loitering around Fashion Square, charged with that, has to be reported. If you park your car on the highway and you're obstructing the highway and you're, uh, you've, you've got a misdemeanor allegation charged for that, you've got to report it. So there's some really interesting wow. things that doctors have to report. And if you are charged with a crime, you'd be well advised to go to the board's website and see whether you have to report it or not. So those are the, those are the self-reports. Most often they're DUIs, occasionally domestic violence. It has to be self-reported. Yeah, I can't imagine the stallion has come up recently. That's, probably, that's an artifact from a while ago. I, but I did have one case that involved setting a fire in a vacant alley. Right. Being something wow. that had to be reported. Is it seen, I'm thinking right now of the NCAA and school violations. It comes in the news every once in a while where you have an allegation or, or something that uh, a university official or a college athlete would say, oh, that this program violated whatever statutes of the NCAA, and it sometimes can be seen as um, possibly a more lenient process if the school self-identifies. Is that the case for physicians, uh, MD or DO physicians, or any other professional in the state of Arizona if they come before a board and they self-identify the misbehavior? Depending on what the behavior is, if you are required to report the behavior and you do not, then that in and of itself qualifies as unprofessional conduct. So let's say, for instance, you have a DUI and you fail to report it within the 10 days. By the way, you have 10 business days to make this report. If you fail to do that, not only do you have the DUI, you also have unprofessional conduct for reporting. it. So I don't think you get a break because you report your own DUI. What you're doing is you're preventing yourself from getting an unprofessional conduct for failure to report, which is one of the most common common issues that physicians have, failure to report. And the board's a little bit, frankly, the boards are a little bit tired of it. They think that they've made enough uh, in the way of education that physicians ought to know what has to be reported and when. They don't like failure to report. Okay. One of the issues that's come up uh, more recently is the Postal Service and changes to the Postal Service um, the cost of mailing something and the time that it would take to get to the destination. Are complaints submitted online? So if it takes 10 days, does something have to be postmarked by the 10 days? Does it have to be delivered or arrive? Or can you just send an email? Um, if you're a physician, and I guess if you're a patient or someone else, can you just scribble something on a note and deliver it to the board? What qualifies as a complaint? Complaint can come in any form. There is a way to do the complaint directly online. There's a complaint form. You can fill it out online. You can also send something in, in the mail. Uh, so that hasn't really been a problem. When a complaint has been filed and the board wants to notify the physician, the board will almost always notify the physician by email. So email has really taken the place of um, 
US mail, although there are some things still sent certified more often by the osteopathic board than the medical board. But email is really the predominant way of communication. Okay, thanks, Steve. I read through one of the agenda examples for a board meeting and it listed cases recommended for dismissal, cases recommended for advisory letters, cases recommended for advisory letters with non-disciplinary continuing medical education orders and on and on. How would you describe how a board meeting proceeds and what those terms mean? Like what are all these cases and the items that are part of that meeting? In general, the board meeting is divided into two pieces the consent agenda, and then the what's called, what's known as legal matters. The consent, the consent agenda is where physicians do not directly appear and defend themselves. These are usually relatively minor decisions. What happens is during an investigation, a lot of the decisions about what's going to happen are made by board staff in the early stages. So let's say Let's say a, a doctor, a complaint against the doctor, the board staff evaluates the complaint and decides they believe the complaint should be dismissed. That information is sent to the board. Generally, the board votes on that complaint en masse, all at one time. They don't feel it's necessary to have a doctor come in front of them and testify. Same thing if it's a more minor case where staff feels like just an advisory letter, a warning letter, and maybe some non-disciplinary continuing education is advisable. Those things all come under consent agenda. They're handled en masse. Now, that doesn't mean a doctor and the doctor's attorney cannot appear. Actually, they appear at the very beginning of the meeting and they have three minutes to speak. Let's say a doctor might say, I know, um, I, I know a letter of concern has been recommended, an advisory letter been recommended. I don't think I deserve that because I didn't do this and I didn't do that. The board may not hear the case for six or seven hours, but the board may take that into account. The board can also pull a case and say, we want to discuss this a little bit further. The board can, at a future date, invite the doctor. Those are all non-disciplinary matters. If it's a matter where discipline is being considered, those are legal matters. And for that, the doctor and or the doctor's attorney will appear and be directly interviewed by the board. So that's why you see a dichotomy. You see kind of two different tracks and two different paths to a board meeting. Most of the time, uh, the more serious items are done at the beginning of the meeting, in the morning, and the more consent-related items, the consent agenda is done in the afternoon. Thank you. That's really helpful to, to frame what the board is about, how they work, how a meeting proceeds. And we'll take a break now. When we come back, we'll speak with Dr. Steve Perlmutter about his guidance for how to avoid a board complaint, how to avoid going before the board. We'll be right back. This podcast was sponsored by Mutual Insurance Company of Arizona, the select provider of medical professional liability coverage for the Maricopa County Medical Society. As a physician-led mutual, MICA has been Arizona's choice for medical professional liability insurance for nearly 45 years. We provide value to members with superior claims handling and exceptional risk management programs. Call us today for a quote or visit our website to learn more about MICA's premium coverage options and outstanding service. 
956-5276 or www.mica-insurance.com. Bureau of Medical Economics has been servicing the account collection needs of the medical community since 1951 with nearly 70 years of experience in this industry and proven results. We proudly consider our clients, your practice, an invaluable business partner. There is no obligation and no upfront cost. Please give us a call at 602-252-3469 for more information. Hi, and welcome back to the Arizona Physician Podcast. And our guest today is Dr. Steve Perlmutter. Now we want to talk, Steve, about your recent article in Arizona Physician Magazine about how to avoid the board. You mentioned four ways, uh, including spending the most time on behavior. So are complaints based on physician behavior the majority of cases that come before the board? Probably a, a higher percentage of behavioral complaints than standard of care complaints. Obviously, we, we handle them both. My preference is actually to handle standard of care complaints, but we handle any complaint that a, that a patient brings in. I think standard of care is probably pretty well understood by most people practicing. It's what a reasonable physician would do under similar circumstances a physician with the same training. Unprofessional conduct is a much broader area. It involves things like uh, drinking, DUIs, improper relationships with patients, charging unreasonable fees, maintaining, failing to maintain adequate medical records. And because there are so many of those things that can happen, they do, uh, they do comprise the majority of cases that I see. So obviously the first way to avoid that, a board complaint is to avoid acting unprofessionally. Physicians should understand that, that their behavior doesn't just apply when they're seeing the patient. A review and a test of their behavior occurs for the rest of the day, the rest of the day, the rest of the week, during their off time as well. So you have to remain professional throughout your life, throughout 24-7 in order to avoid a board complaint. That's some good advice. Your second way to avoid a complaint relates to bills. Would you please describe that in more detail? Everybody knows you need to bill patients fairly. You can't bill patients for services uh, not rendered. Billing mistakes occur. But I'm not really talking about those glaring things. I'm talking about a few small points that in my practice I've seen more often than you would, you would imagine. And it has to do with billing surprises or it has to do with angry patients that you bill. One of the scenarios, I'll give you a scenario that that happened to me. I, I was at the dentist this week and the dentist charges an extra $10 because of COVID and the extra PPE that the dentist needs. Now the dentist had that right up front. I signed an agreement for paying the $10 and that was fine. I was perfectly happy to do that. It made a lot of sense to me. Well, let's say the charge was $25 and you didn't notify the patient that they were going to have to pay $25. And maybe the patient came in three or four times and was billed. And the patient was very unhappy with your services. So you could have a situation where you've got an unhappy patient who has to pay four times 25, an extra $100, and didn't know that. You can imagine that if that patient is unhappy enough, that $100, 
is going to precipitate a board complaint. And $100 is not worth a board complaint. So make sure that those things are clearly identified. Also, if you have a really unhappy patient, maybe you don't try to get every single dollar out of the case. Maybe if the patient can't afford it, you forgive some of the charges. You don't send the patients to collections. If you've had a bad result, that might be a, that might be a reasonable thing to do under various circumstances. That's why my concerns about charges can precipitate board complaints is all about. Yeah. You mentioned a third way to avoid complaints, and that relates to opioid prescriptions. Why do you recommend that physicians avoid prescribing opioids? Management of opioids is really very, very difficult. And unless you are a specialist or you want to devote a lot of time and attention to opioids, it's probably better to stay away from it. Just a list of the opioid things you have to consider. You need to, you need to do complete histories and physicals. You need to know what the patient's goals are assess the patient's functionality. You're going to have to do depression screens. You're going to have to do opioid risk tools. There are pain contracts. You have to check the pharmacy website, urine drug screens, pill counts. You're going to have to concern yourself with the other medications the patients are on. You don't want to be in, into opioids plus benzodiazepines. You have to be concerned about tapering medications. Did you use other medications? Did you use other modalities of treatment? Patients may be unhappy and complain. Family members may complain because they think you're overdosing the patients. You may precipitate substance use disorders. Have you considered whether there's a psychiatric component to all that? All of that stuff has to be considered. It's very difficult for people to consider that unless they're really fine-tuned to doing that, plus it's not really a happy kind of practice. So if you like it, if you wanna do it, God bless you, patients certainly need it and that's wonderful, but if you're not really committed to it, you're really probably better off doing something that brings you joy and satisfaction. Okay, thank you. Plus it precipitates an enormous, disproportionate number of, of complaints. And the board is very hard on opioids. About years ago, the board used to call people in for not prescribing enough opioids. Now they're coming in for prescribing wow. too many opioids because the, the, uh, the attitude towards opioids and the theory of treatment have radically changed. It's hard to get it just right. Right. You had mentioned a fourth and final way to avoid complaints that go before the board. And, and this relates to informed consent. Would you please describe what you mean by that? Physicians have an incomplete understanding of informed consent. Informed consent is not just a piece of paper that a, that a patient signs three minutes before they're going into the operating room. Informed consent is a process. It's necessary to explain to the patient the risks, benefits, and alternatives of treatment. The patient has to understand what those things are. It can't be just on a sheet of paper. And you have to consider what would a reasonable patient want to know and make sure the patient knows that. And you may also have to consider what special things would a particular patient want to know. And you have to consider those items and make sure that those are all explained to the patient. Make sure the patient understands. I really like when doctors go in 
at the end of it and say to the patient, have I answered all of your questions? To me, that's a very important thing to say. And physicians would be well advised to say that. Now, this doesn't mean that the physician has to go in and give the entire informed consent. It can be done by other people. But I think a little bit of participation of the physician is well worth it. Also, it's important to tell patients that the treatments that you're doing, surgery or medicine, they're not guaranteed. Just a little funny story. I, I called my practice, my ophthalmology practice was called Hope Eye Center. And frequently when I tell a patient about risks and benefits, I'd say, when you walked in the door, you notice the name on the door, it was Hope Eye Center. I would say, you notice it wasn't called Guaranteed Eye Center. And that's because I hope everything will turn out right for you, but I certainly do not guarantee it. Make sure patients understand nothing is guaranteed in medicine. Steve, you've written before citing Abraham Lincoln as having said, quote, a person who represents himself has a fool for a client. And this connects to my final question. So for physicians listening, if someone receives a complaint, to whom should they turn for advice? In my opinion, they should turn to an attorney. I don't think there's any question about that. Physicians are intelligent people, but they don't know much about the law. They don't know the way the board works. They don't know what's right. They don't know what to say. They don't understand the process. They can make admissions that they shouldn't be making. They should send rec they could be sending records that they shouldn't say. They should they perhaps could contact a patient. It would be an enormous mistake to do that. They can't do that. They can't contact a medical consultant. They just don't understand how to manage these kinds of cases. A physician probably would not manage a case if the Internal Revenue Service called and said, we're from the IRS, we're here to help you. The physician would probably not handle an IRS case or a DUI case. A physician should not handle a board case. They just don't know enough about it. And their insurance companies more or less agree because almost every insurance policy has a professional benefit for uh, board defense. And there's a reason for that. It's because physicians would be well advised to do it. One of the, pro one of the problems about medical board cases is what I call metastatic disease. A complaint is filed for one particular reason, but frequently the case metastasizes to something else. Once the board has your records, there could be an entirely different problem that they pursue. Inadequate records is frequently one of them. Interesting story, I had a client, a physician who is managing pain, and really just managing pain, and using electronic health records. And you know, of course, these health records repopulate time after time with the same information. So the every exam, the abdomen was flat, non-tender. Month after month, flat and non-tender. The problem was that the patient was pregnant. And from month to month, the abdomen was certainly not flat. That was not observed by the doctor, caught by the doctor. And when those medical records got to the board, it had nothing to do with pregnancy. But when the board saw flat non-tender during the pregnancy, the board said, these are inadequate medical records. And now you have another problem. So those kinds of things have to be considered. Hire an attorney. It's really a smart thing to do. 
Dr. Steve Perlmutter, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate you going through your ideas of how to avoid a board complaint, which was in the article published in the Arizona Physician Magazine. And thank you for being on the podcast today. Thanks for inviting me. Founded in 1892, Maricopa County Medical Society is a strong, collective physician voice. Thank you for listening to the Arizona Physician Podcast.